Why don't we go on to the next case? All right. Sounds good. Our next patient is a 37-year-old man who, very interesting, he's a construction worker and I guess about three or four years ago had had some kind of minor trauma or something which resulted in a chest x-ray and this noted a pulmonary nodule. He had follow-up scans done annually for this and this has been followed over the last two to three years with really no progression. This spring in 2010, there was a significant change on the CT scan and the tumor had actually doubled in size, and so he was referred to a thoracic surgeon. Mediastinoscopy and bronchoscopy were performed, which were negative, and he underwent a thoracotomy. And this resulted in a adenocarcinoma. The size of the tumor was 4.2 centimeters, and he was staged as a T2N0M0 stage 1B non-small cell lung cancer. Mark, how would you be thinking through this situation and any comments on his age of being 37? Yeah, he's 37, a construction worker, 30-plus uh, pack year history of tobacco exposure. Interestingly, he said that I guess when he had a spontaneous pneumothorax about four years ago, obviously an x-ray then showed a pulmonary nodule, and he was followed yearly for this. And for about three years, this nodule was stable. And then from that year to when he presented in the spring of this year, the nodule had more than doubled in size. And so that's what caused them to kind of take action that Matt summarized. Here's a young guy. He had pre-op staging that was appropriate. His mediastinoscopy was negative. He had mediastinal nodes sampled at the time of resection. He had a 4.2 centimeter adenocarcinoma. His risk of recurrence and death is not insignificant. I, at that age, and given the fact that he had really no other comorbidities, you know, I would have recommended adjuvant chemotherapy. I think the choice of cisplatin and pemetrexid is exactly what I would have done in this patient. He ended up tolerating it well. And, you know, hopefully this has done him well and he'll be cured of this and live out his life. But, you know, I get concerned about the development of this disease at such a young age, and it makes me concerned that he might have some genetic susceptibility. He did have about a 30-pack year exposure, but still it's a relatively young age to develop this disease. But fortunately, he developed it, and if it weren't for this spontaneous pneumothorax, in fact, he pointed that out today, that if it weren't for developing that pneumothorax and getting in the system and getting a chest X-ray when he was 29 or about what age he was, that he goes, I don't know when I would have been diagnosed with this, and I shudder to think that it might have been you know, much worse than it was here with no negative lung cancer. Can you talk a little, Mark, about where we are right now in adjuvant therapy in terms of non-protocol management options as well as clinical trial questions that are being asked? Sure. You know, I think that it's clear that good quality surgery is important, and I think attention to the mediastinal lymph nodes or the regional lymph nodes is paramount. They should be evaluated systematically before you go to the operating room. Those patients who have mediastinal involvement probably should not go to the operating room initially, and certainly this controversy about whether or not they should go to the operating room at all, and maybe they should be managed with chemoradiotherapy. We'll get into that with a couple of the subsequent patients. I'm convinced that if you have a negative mediastinum, I think it's appropriate to operate on these patients that are surgically amenable to it. They have good cardiopulmonary function and can make it through an operation safely. 
At the time of operation, they should have at least systematic sampling, if not mediastinal dissection, to be sure that you have good nodal staging. I think it's very clear from the LACE meta-analysis that those patients with node-positive disease get a clear benefit that is statistically, and I think clinically significant, the hazard ratio is close to 0.8 in terms of the benefit. I think there's controversy in the node-negative population. We've kind of thought of the node-negative patients as either small tumors or large tumors, and the cutoff we use is 4 centimeters, which is a totally arbitrary cutoff and generated out of a retrospective analysis of the CLGB9633. But it has been validated in other data sets, and in the new staging system, we know that size is important, and the bigger your tumor is, the higher your risk is of recurrence and death. So, you know, I do think that a size criteria in node-negative disease is a reasonable barometer to use as to whether or not you give adjuvant therapy. You know, if someone comes in, I'm actually right now treating a lady in her mid-50s who's perfectly healthy. Her tumor is 3.8 centimeters. And she said to me, I want you to do everything possible to cure me of this. I don't want this to come back. And so at 3.8 centimeters off trial, I'm giving her cisplatinum pemetrexid. She has adenocarcinoma histology. And there was a motivated patient that understood that I couldn't be clear that I understood that there was a clear benefit in this particular setting. But given the fact that she did very well after surgery, no comorbidities, I was not concerned about her getting four cycles. And as she finally said, if this comes back in three years, I don't want to look back and say, if I didn't take the chemo, maybe I should have. And so that's, you know, kind of our thought process. But this unfolded over two office visits that probably totaled two hours and 20 minutes talking to her and her family and all that kind of stuff. So so that kind of sums it up. Now, the issue is, what's the optimal regimen? I think it's clear that the data is strongest with cisplatinum. There's not convincing data with carboplatinum to date. So I think we should be using cisplatinum with a second drug. The evidence-based drug is venerelbine. The ECOG-1505 allows four regimens. They are cisplatinum venerelbine, cisplatinum docetaxel, cisplatinum genocidabine, and cisplatinum pemetrexid in the non-squamous population. So outside of a trial, I think any of those are reasonable. In my practice, I tend to use cisplatinum pemetrexid for the non-squames and either cis-docetaxel or cis-gem for the squamous population, depending upon other issues. So that kind of sums it up. I think the research questions are, can we identify patients that may get benefit with different types of chemotherapy? What I mean by this use of chemotherapy biomarkers such as ERCC1 and RRM1. There are some trials both in the U.S. and in Europe that are ongoing addressing those kind of cytotoxic chemotherapy markers. We don't have any prospective data yet. There's a retrospective analysis of the international trial that suggests that ERCC1 might be important in terms of benefit from cisplatinum-based therapy, but that's, you know, retrospective data. The two paradigms we've validated in stage four disease have been EGFR-directed and anti-VEGF-directed. In terms of anti-VEGF, the Eastern Cooperative Group is running ECOG 1505, which grafts bevacizumab onto one of those four chemotherapy regimens I mentioned before. The chemotherapy is given for four cycles. The bevacizumab is given for a year. So that trial is ongoing. It's kind of, I think, approaching about halfway done. It's designed for about 1,500 patients, so it's slowly getting there. In terms of anti-EGFR, we have the RADIANT trial that has accrued about 1,000 patients to placebo versus erlotinib. This is in both node-positive and node-negative patients. The physician 
could have given the adjuvant chemotherapy or may not have. If you had a 2.5 centimeter tumor, then I typically wouldn't give that patient adjuvant chemotherapy, but they still could have gone on the radiant trial and gotten either erlotinib or placebo. That trial did select patients by EGFR positivity, either by immunohistochemistry or by FISH. So it's a bit of an enriched treatment strategy there, although we know most patients are positive for EGFR by immunohistochemistry at least. So we don't have any results from that trial as of yet. The other important trial to mention is the Magritte trial. This looks at patients who are MAGE A3 positive. There was a positive phase two trial looking at the use of this vaccine directed toward MAGE A3. Vaccines are attractive in these states of minimal residual disease. And they're very well tolerated. Patients tend to like them. And so we have that trial open at our center. The problem is, is that the rate of MAGE A3 positivity is only about 25 to 30% of patients at this point. So the most patients will not be MAGE A3 positive, and that's a requirement for the trial. It's being looked at in a central lab. So that's kind of where that trial is. So those are the major trials or the major research directions ongoing right now. There are a couple of genomic strategies that are really kind of looking and searching for either a proteomic or genomic signature that would define risk and benefit. And again, I think those need a bit more prospective data before we know how to use those clinically. So can you bring us up to date on this patient, Matt? Sure. So he got four cycles of cis-pemetrexid as adjuvant therapy, and I would say tolerated it fairly well. He had some strange abdominal pain with therapy, which is more or less resolved, although there's still kind of a minimal amount there. Uh, don't quite have a good explanation for that. We did also test him for, we have the Magritte study here, and he is mage A3 positive, and so he qualified for the study, and he is now getting recombinant antibody to the mage epitope along with AS15. I guess that's an antigen to stimulate. What's his life situation and his state of mind? Uh, I would say he's a generally fairly positive person. He kind of seemed to take this in stride, which I found a little bit surprising, honestly. I think if I was facing this situation, I would have been freaking out. But he seemed to take it in stride and really, you know, just kind of roll with the punches. He's a construction worker. He's divorced. He has a child. He lives about an hour away from the office. And, you know, he's a nice guy. I've enjoyed taking care of him. Have you gotten to the point, or has he asked you, or did you offer in terms of any numbers, you know, the way we do a lot of times in the breast cancer, chance of recurrence, how that's affected by treatment, that kind of stuff? Mm-hmm. Yes, he did ask about prognosis with and without additional therapy, and we did have sort of a vague discussion about that. I think in general, I quoted him adjuvant chemotherapy as potentially benefiting him in terms of enhancing the cure rate by somewhere in the order of 10 to 15%. And I think his odds of cure, Mark, you can jump in here, I guess, with surgery alone might be, what, 60, 70% or something? Well, I think in the T2 population, I think it's probably in the 50 to 60% with surgery alone in that population. So depending upon which trial you look at, the absolute numbers are different. But I generally kind of look at the meta-analysis, and it's, you know, in my mind, a 15 to 20%. If you take all of the trials together, about a 15 to 20% relative benefit over surgery alone. So that's kind of what I tell people. And I would be surprised if someone at this age and in his lack of comorbidities wouldn't do it. But I must tell you in the more typical lung cancer population, you know, the 75-year-old guy who smoked most of his life six weeks out from his thoracotomy, but still had a lot of pain and maybe had a few post-op complications and 
you know, is a little slow to recover from the operation. When you start to talk about 15 to 20% relative benefit, and you talk about the side effects of cisplatin-based therapy, I've had a number of patients say, I understand there's a small benefit, but it's just in the big scheme of things. I'm 75. I got other problems. I don't think the bang is worth the buck in that setting. But, you know, I do think the responsible thing to do is to have a discussion about adjuvant therapy. But I saw a guy in my clinic this week who was 52, and we had this discussion for a while, and he just said, you know, I understand it, but I don't want to sign up for it. And at least he knows. Now, Neil can attest that in other populations, like the breast cancer population, they're seemingly willing to go through relatively toxic therapy for a much smaller perceived benefit. Is that an accurate statement? Well, actually, we showed that not just in breast cancer, but also in colon cancer adjuvant situation, both men and women. We didn't look at it in lung cancer. I hear a lot from investigators, sort of like what you're saying. But Matt, is that your experience that lung cancer patients more typically are not very proactive compared to, say, breast? Because I don't know if I buy that. Well, I think that what Mark is describing, too, about the patients getting pretty beat up by their surgery and also also having a lot of comorbid illness and probably in general being a much older population, I think then facing the idea of a prolonged course of chemotherapy is not a very attractive option. Yeah, and I think, Neil, too, I mean, we're kind of wedded to the cisplatinum-based platform. So it's not like talking to someone at age 75 who you might give adjuvant tamoxifen to or whatever, you know, at this point. It's a different level of risk in terms of toxicity from the treatment. And that's another question, which is in terms of carbo, do you use it? Is there an age where you start talking about it? Some people do. A lot of people in practice do. Yeah, you know, and I struggle with this a lot because I do think that if you ask most people, you know, who do lung cancer for a living, what's the more active platinum? And they'll say cisplatinum. And probably in metastatic disease, it doesn't make a difference. But in the adjuvant setting, it's a curative setting. And I struggle with the lack of clear evidence that carbo is a reasonable substitute. And if I'm thinking, you know, if I have to give carbo, this patient wouldn't have been in the cisplatinum trials because of that. And the benefit, even though I think it's real, is modest from cisplatinum-based approaches. So I wonder if we're kind of not doing justice to the patient. If we think we can't give them cisplatinum, is carboplatinum really doing them any good? And, you know, I just don't know. So I tend to select patients that I will start with cisplatinum. And I'm happy to change the carbo if there's a cisplatinum-related toxicity. But, you know, to be honest with you, I struggle with it. I know the community uses a lot of carboplatinum-based therapy, but I'm worried that we don't really know that we're providing any significant benefit in that population. How about you, Matt? Do you ever use carbo in the adjuvant setting? I guess we try our best to use cisplatinum. It seems, though, that if you have you know, documented benefit to adjuvant therapy, that substituting carbo for cis seems, I don't know, probably. I mean, I know you're making a significant extrapolation, but probably beneficial as well. So we do our best to give cisplatinum. And like Mark said, if there's any significant toxicity, we'll switch to carbo rapidly. And, but yeah, we do use, on occasion, carbo. 